You're listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge. This interview is brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a global network of more than 75 independent agencies in over 40 countries who support the world's most heralded brands. To learn how Worldwide Partners can help you reimagine growth for your business, then visit WorldwidePartners.com. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Yes, I say that every week, but this week is really an exception because Jane Asher is the CEO and founding partner at 23Red. And if you are interested in things like how to change human behavior, and by the way, you should be if you're listening to this show, then it's an absolute masterclass on nudging human behavior in the right direction to reach hard to reach communities and changed entrenched human behaviors that on the face of it seem as though there's very little that you can do about it. Childhood obesity, quitting smoking, sexual harassment, violence against women, diversity and inclusion, gambling. Just go down the list of uh, the things that her incredible team at 23 Red have achieved. They've impacted the lives of millions of people. We talk about everything from how they measure the success of campaigns when it takes years for people's behavior to actually change and then how you track that. We talk about the time she almost kind of bought her beloved Cardiff City football team. It's a fascinating conversation. We talk about their membership in Worldwide Partners, the sponsors of this series. She talks about why the WPI network has helped them deliver for global clients around the world. I just love my job because, to be honest, I get to speak to people like Jane all day. I'd do it for free if I, if I wasn't getting paid. By the way, stick around until the end where you'll hear my chat with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners. He shares his thoughts about the value the network delivers to independent agencies and their members. If you do anything with your life this week, then listening to this episode is a must because it's just an absolute masterclass. So make your excuses. I don't know, go for a walk, take the bins out. I don't know, whatever excuses you need to make, just make sure that you listen to this episode this week. So I'm going to stop talking now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jane Asher. My name is Nathan Anibaba, and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. Jane Asher is the CEO and founding partner of 23Red, a multi-award winning purpose-driven agency. They develop brands and campaigns that change behavior for the better and have a massive positive impact on people's lives. Their campaigns for leading businesses, charities, and government have positively influenced the lives of millions of people. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jane Asher, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you. Great to be here. Super excited to have you on the show. It's not often that I get a chance to speak to an agency owner that positively influenced the lives of millions of people, literally. How do you think about the responsibility and impact that you've had on real people's lives over a 20-year career at 23 Red? 
Oh, it's a great question to start with. I mean, I, I think about it every day. It's, it's what motivates me to get up in the morning. Uh, it's massively, massively important to me. Uh, I mean, I feel, uh, I feel a, a real responsibility, actually, in the first instance, to my guys, to my staff. You know, they all work in this business because they're highly motivated by the impact of the work they do. So my sort of responsibility to them is, is, is massive. My responsibility to, uh, to the wider community. I mean, I, I, um, uh, it's what really gives me a buzz. You know, I mean, I, I work on fantastic, really interesting, thorny, challenging, difficult problems every day uh, on blood donation, for example, uh, on tackling childhood obesity, um, uh, on financial inclusion. All of these issues are really, really important. Um, and, uh, you know, and I love it when we win awards for that kind of work. Um, and we win awards, not just because it's fantastic creativity, but because actually we can evidence the number of lives saved or improved through the work that we do. Um, and, you know, we've also been responsible for delivering a significant return, if you like, to the, to the public purse, uh, in terms of, of, of tackling some of these, the, these, these major issues. So, uh, yeah, it's the, the responsibility is what gives me the real buzz. It's what motivates my teams. Uh, yeah, massively, massively important. I do want to talk about your work and the impact that you've had on society and people's lives. But before we do that, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. It's, it's hard to fit it all in. But I want to talk about your background in history because it's a really interesting one. It's possibly something that will give us some context to how you've thought about developing your career and the impact that you want to have with 23 Red. So you got your BA in philosophy, politics and economics from Oxford, and your first job was a senior account manager for Ogilvy in 1985. Tell us the story of how you got into Ogilvy, because it wasn't kind of straightforward. No, it wasn't, actually. And uh, it's, it's really funny. I, I, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, actually, when I left university. And I had uh, um, somebody who was the year above me at uni who'd got into this you know, career called advertising. I thought, God, that sounds really interesting, really glamorous, really, really fun. And I kind of thought, well, I'd, I'd give, it a, give it a bit of a punt. And I put my CV together. And in those days, it was really old school, right? We didn't have emails. We didn't have computers. You know, it, it was it was the sort of carbon copy typed CV. And I did my CV. I sent it off to all of these uh, agencies to apply for the graduate trainee program. And after I'd sent it, I realized that I had made a terrible mistake and I had mistyped the address, um, uh, the number of the house in which I was living in, in Oxford. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't, it wasn't that I could go and knock on the next door neighbor's house because it was a house sort of miles down the street and it was rented out. And, and so I couldn't sort of intercept the post. So I realized that I had to phone all of the directors of recruitment to, um, to confess to my mistake. <laughs> and I phoned Ogilvy's and I asked to speak to the uh, PA, to the uh, director of graduate recruitment, a guy called Clive Aldred. Uh, only I got put through directly to him. And it was kind of like one of these big gulp moments. You sort of think, oh, my God, I'm going to have to fess up to a dreadful uh, mistake. Right. And I got into a really good conversation with him and I explained my mistake. And I kind of, sort of said, this is one of the first lessons, really, I'm quite sure of a career in, in advertising is, you know, proofreading. And he sort of said, oh, hang on a minute. I've got the, you know, the pile of CVs here and rifled through, through them and found mine and made a note. And, um, and I got the, 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 you know, a first interview and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Uh, but I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that uh, you know clearly that was the, the way in which I 
turned what was just the most horrendously embarrassing situation uh, into a positive was, uh, you know, was one of the reasons that I kind of, um, I got found my way into Ogilvy's and I've absolutely loved every single minute of my career in advertising. Worldwide Partners is one of the largest networks of independent marketing services agencies in the world. They offer brand marketeers and agencies a global platform to reimagine their growth. They've got over 75 agencies in over 40 different countries. And that means that brands and agencies get access to global talent with localized insight to create impactful campaigns that are delivered locally, nationally, and with international scale. Learn more at worldwidepartners.com. Fast forward a few years and you become chairman and CEO of Tequila, overseeing award-winning integrated campaigns for brands like BT, IBM, Visa, just go down the list of the biggest companies around. What, what impact did that have on the direction of your career? So um, that's really interesting, actually, because at uh, at Ogilvy's, um, I had been working on big sort of advertising brands, and I carried that through to another agency called Walter and Allen Henry and Thompson. Doesn't exist anymore, like many agencies merged and merged and merged. But that started me on a journey, and I first worked on purpose in the late eighties, actually, on the government's drink drive campaign. Then I moved to Tequila, and what Tequila gave me was the opportunity to work across what was in those days again a new, emerging, innovative uh, marketing skill set. So we were working very much on direct marketing and and then uh, and then really big into digital. So I kind of developed a very broad, integrated um, uh, skill set um, and, and then uh, started to get really interested and reignite my interest in, uh, in purpose, which... Um, uh, which was then what prompted uh, Sean and I to, 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 to set up 23 Red. I'm sure we'll come back to that one in a minute. We will. Just before we do, though, the culture at that time was really interesting in advertising agencies and, and agencies generally, because you said someone said to you at the time, I don't know who it was, you'll have to remind us, but they said, quote, you'll never get a job as the CEO if you don't cut your hair and, and get your nails done. Discuss. Discuss. Oh, he also told me to buy a brand new suit as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's really interesting. You know, the culture in in advertising in the sort of eighties and early nineties um, uh, was certainly not uh, uh, conducive, really, to to bringing women through uh, the business. So, uh, you know, lots of lots of female account managers, but really quite difficult and quite challenging to progress to the most senior levels. And I, I, yeah, uh, and that's uh, you know is a very real conversation uh, that that was had at the time. You know that 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 uh, although you know my my abilities were clearly very strong, I needed to think about my uh, you know the sort of personal presentation. Uh, elements and aspects and and uh, actually i i really um i kind of doubled down and I, I and i sort of really felt actually do you know what i'm really confident in myself i know my uh, you know my skills my strengths my abilities and i know i can do this job um and i kind of did get the last laugh because actually i got the, the you know the job and um the uh, individual uh, concerned a few years later left the business Justice, uh, it, it does happen from time to time. So tell us the founding story of 23 Red. What were the, and what were the main milestones between 2000 when you set it up until where we are today? So 
towards the latter stages of of uh, tequila, uh, we were Sean and I were completing our our uh, earnouts and uh, I would say infinitesimally small earnouts. Otherwise, we would have been on some lovely island somewhere. But um, uh, no, I, I I say that just actually work to me defines you know, who I am. So I definitely, definitely didn't want to retire. But um, we uh, really wanted to set up an agency that was was going to do three things. Um, one was to um, to be able to recruit and en- incentivize and motivate entrepreneurial talent. You know, working in the big groups, we'd found our hands tied and our inability really to do that. So we really wanted to create a culture um, and a creative agency where entrepreneurial talent could flourish. Um, the second thing that we wanted to do was to, um, to, to to be able to offer a very broad integrated solution. I talked earlier actually about how I had been really lucky to have experienced such a broad range of integrated marketing skills earlier on in my career. And I really wanted to be able to take a holistic view of clients' problems. And the third most important thing really, and this is where the sort of purpose bit comes uh, and really starts the, the, the 23 Red Journey is that we wanted to create future-proof brands. And, you know, kind of fast forward really to where we are now, what it, what I think we can all see in the world that future-proof brands is all about brands uh, with purpose, uh, brands that deliver against the triple bottom line. So that was, that, but that was very much, you know, intrinsic in the thinking when we set up the business back in 2000. So let's talk a little bit about purposeful brands because it, it wasn't you know a few years ago there were very few brands that really had purpose at the core of, of what they did and and they didn't really get involved in social causes I mean we're seeing so many brands just look at the, the issue in, in Russia now so many brands pulling out of of Russia because of um, either backlash or uh, you know the, they want to be seen to be doing the right thing a few years ago a lot of brands didn't really do that. They they had more fo- focus on their commercial bottom line, and it seems as though so many more brands now are, are are doing that. What's given rise to that? Do you think? And maybe talk a little bit about that in respect to kind of what's happening in Russia now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really great question, and actually, what's giving rise to it is is really very much, but um. Uh, the, the you know cons- consumers you know we are we are growing up now with the first generation of consumers that are actively making purchase decisions based on how brands behave uh, towards their staff towards their customers towards their communities towards their supply chain towards the environment you know it is a really important uh, factor just looking at all the trend reports for 2022, you know, that the power of purpose, the importance of purpose is absolutely topping those trend charts, but it's very much driven by consumers voting with their feet. And that is is exactly what we are seeing currently is brands making these kinds of decisions to pull out of Russia. And that is very much, you know, the right thing for them to be doing. It's what their consumers uh, want them to be doing. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what's driving it. I think what's 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 sort of changed for brands is, you know, I, I kind of feel some of them have been dragged a bit screaming and kicking and some of them, some of them still are, you know, they've kind of thought about these issues in the past only as being part of the corporate social responsibility 
um, you know, to uh, over there in the business, you know, and it's just it's just a box that we that we tick. And uh, and yes, of course, we need to be seen to be doing, the, you know, the right thing from, uh, you know, from the point of view of the environment or signing us up for net zero. Of course, we need to be, uh, you know, ticking the box and saying that we uh, condemn modern slavery or, you know, whatever the latest uh, CSR sort of issue is. And, and it's just no longer enough. Um, you know, consumers are demanding and interestingly, increasingly investors are demanding that brands demonstrate that ESG. And I think it's probably it's that latter point, actually, reflecting on it now, that's go, that's actually making making the big brands make that leap, make that jump is that focus on ESG. Uh, and that that investors are now, um, uh, you know, are now looking uh, looking at that. And so, you know, I think um, clearly it's only going one way, and purpose is becoming more and more important to brands. Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Bridge, the growth-focused podcast agency. We help ambitious agencies talk to the right brands through the power of podcasting. Generate leads, win new business, and increase reputation. Check out our clients' podcasts and find more resources to keep learning at bridgegrowth.org. Now, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about behavior change. This is is a topic that I've been personally fascinated about for the last few years. I love the books on on Nudge and and the Nudge unit. Um, you, You focus on purposeful campaigns, social issues like climate, DNI, skills and learning, road safety campaigns, clean clean air zones, migrant help, which is very topical right now, sexual harassment, violence against women and, and girls, gambling, um, to name a few. Explain the process through which people's behaviors change. So uh, I wish I could do that in just one sentence. That's a really interesting topic, and it, it, it you know it's a whole podcast in its own right. And I think uh, I think the key thing for me is explaining a bit about the approach because um, uh, you know every every issue that we work on clearly um, you know has its own set of sort of you know complexities. But I think fundamentally the key the key point here is is you know understanding the um the barriers and the motivators to change and there are a number of sort of academic models that we work with to help us to to do that um combi is a really good example developed developed by susan mickey from ucl um and so every time we get a brief we're quite sort of we're quite systematic about working through the combi model which talks about capability uh, opportunity uh, and motivation and really um really listening to audiences the the value of consumer insight is so so important to understanding those barriers to change um and understanding what the motivators are to change so that's that insight piece is critically important i think how we nudge to use the the word that that that, that you used earlier um again i mean such a broad range of sort of tools and techniques and uh, we actually have 23 go to tools and techniques you might you know, 23 red handy there are actually hundreds out there that's part of the problem actually we've kind of narrowed it down to the ones that we think are most useful and most helpful in terms of changing consumer behavior 
Um, and actually, they're really kind of really quite simple. Some of them, you know, we like talk about well, social norming, for example, which is you know just just give, making people giving people the uh, the the the, uh, the realization, helping people to realize that people like them do, do adopt these like uh, behaviors mm, and do things like this. Chonking is another one which we use quite a lot. You know, if you talk about uh, trying to get fit kids to do more physical activity, you know, and they, in the, in the summer holidays, they've got to do 60 minutes of physical activity a day. You say that to, to a mum and she goes, oh my God, you know, that's really big, onerous undertaking. If you kind of chunk it down and you go, do you know what? Here's just 10 minutes of really great fun activities and just slot them in during the course of the day. You've built up to 60 minutes without even realizing a technique called chunking. So those simple sort of techniques. And then I guess when we come to the actual design and the craft of the creative solutions there are a whole um uh, series there of techniques that we can apply so we think um about you know how we can make that communication really easy really really timely uh, which which come off a, a model which is called east so uh, so yeah so we do that we, we, we work a lot with academics we have a great academic partnership with uh, cambridge university uh, behavioral insight team who really also help us to identify those um those those key sort of nudges so the one that i love that sticks in my mind was what they did to encourage more organ donations i can't remember the exact details now but it was about encouraging people to not opt out mm -hmm. instead of opting in. It was to opt out. A very simple change. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can kind of explain it in more detail. Yeah. But it was, it, it's really kind of relying on people's laziness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, uh, maybe maybe explain that one. Yeah. So so actually, uh, the the there was uh, you know change in the legislation actually, and it, uh, historically, you needed to sign up to the organ donation register. Uh, and we had a change in the legislation in the UK where actually it became the opposite, that you needed to opt out. If you didn't opt out, it was assumed that you were on the organ donation register. So that's a legislation change. And it's a great example of where communications needs to support legislation because um, uh, you might think there was no longer a role for, for, for communications. You know, if, you, if, it, if it's all about your uh, opt out, you're on the register anyway, well, you know, you're on the register. The point is that we needed to make sure that people had the conversation to let people know, those family, friends know, that they had um, considered that and that they were happy with that situation, that they would be on the organ donation register. And the reason it's really important is that um, when a... Um, the, the, the lovely name is Clod and Snod. The clinical nurses and the uh, and the uh, clinical doctors, when they're in that situation of having a conversation with an individual, with the, the family of the uh, 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 you know the, the, the bereaved family, uh, no clinician is going to fly in the face of a family that says, "But I don't know that that they were certain that they were." happy to be on the organ donation register. And so the campaign that we developed alongside that change in legislation was all around promoting the conversation and leaving people certain that that was the that was the their decision that was indeed their wish. And then uh, one of the challenges that we had alongside that is that there were certain 
certain groups and certain communities uh, where for religious reasons, for example, they have certain barriers towards organ donation. So we did a lot of um, work with uh, uh, young people and faith groups, actually, particularly to change the opinions of older people in certain um, you know, communities. So we have, for example, black African communities, uh, you know, particular challenges. So um, a, a really interesting sort of multi-layered campaign there to support a critical change in the legislation, but demonstrates to very, very clearly that a change in legislation alone is not enough to bring about actual behaviour change. We needed to make sure that the conversation had happened as well. And obviously, on top of that, so much of what you do is measured over such long periods of time, right? Like childhood obesity, it's not something you can measure next week or, or, or next month. You won't know whether or not you've been successful for like years, 10 years plus. How do you know if you've changed behavior when it's so long term? So another great question. Um, and ch childhood obesity is a very good e example of that. You know, you, you, you're talking about, you know, 10 years or so or so hence. I think the key thing for, for me is creating the sight lines between um, the inputs. Uh, so the, the strategies and the creative campaigns that, that we develop. Uh, the outputs, which are, you know, obviously the, you know, the sort of reach um and frequency and you know the, the placement of the of the creative and then of course very importantly the outtakes and the outcomes so the outtakes would be all around you know to what level are people actually engaging in the campaigns that's a first step very much something that we focus on actually and I should have mentioned that earlier when I was talking about you know how we how we go about delivering behavior change getting people started on the journey is really really important so for us measuring the outtakes is you know have we got them to take that first step have we got them to engage with the uh, particular intervention or the particular piece of communication then moving through to the outcomes you know what have we done in terms of um, changing their awareness their understanding their attitudes towards the particular behavior uh, and also what have we done in terms of changing the uh, their claimed behavior now of course claimed is all that is only that it is claimed behavior and we all have a habit of overclaiming, for example, how much physical activity we do, um, and uh, underclaiming uh, how many glasses of wine we might drink or whatever. So claimed behaviour, of course, is not ultimately enough. Uh, and so we, we really are trying to find out what we've done in terms of actual behaviour. And there, we're trying as much as possible to to measure that directly where we can. So, for example, when we work on uh, NHS blood and transplant on, on blood donation, we are able to track through from people registering to people donating to, to lives saved. We can actually track that impact all the way through. Um, in other cases, you know, take childhood obesity, that's way more difficult to do. Um, and so what we're trying to do here is look at what have we actually done in terms of physical activity levels and nutrition, the two component parts, calories in, calories out. So we might use accelerometry to measure children's physical activity level or food diaries in order to track precisely what children are eating. And then ultimately, 
do we see the changes in uh, in BMI measurements of, of primary school age children? But as I as I say, that's a very long term uh, a goal. But yeah, trying to create those sight lines is really important. Which campaigns have been personally most, I guess, rewarding for you, and which ones have been the most challenging? Let's start with the rewarding first. Um, I mean, the most rewarding, and I have mentioned it on several occasions as as we've been speaking, is the NHS blood and transplant um, blood donation campaigns. Um, we need to maintain stock levels uh, in the UK. We have um, very particular uh, challenges uh, with certain um, groups within the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and the work that we have uh, developed, which has been very, very highly targeted, uh, clever use of data, clever use of of, of digital, um, has um, and continues to, uh, you know, to, to 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 perform brilliantly in terms of driving uh, donation and uh, uh, driving registration and donation uh, in the communities from which we we need uh we need blood and uh we are directly able to track that work through to the numbers of lives saved um and that's incredibly rewarding for me and for my teams uh we actively promote blood donation in uh, it, we allow people time off um uh, to uh, attend uh sessions um and that work has uh, has won us uh, numerous awards, creative awards, innovation awards, and it's actually now showcased internationally by the UK government um, as part of their Creativity is Great campaign, um, d- demonstrating, as I say, internationally the uh, the power of um, of of advertising. So uh, for me, that is you know one of the most rewarding campaigns um, uh, that that I work on. And the second one was challenging, wasn't it? Um, do you know what? I mean, they're all challenging because of the nature of the top agendas that we work on. And quite honestly, the more challenging they are, the more I love working on them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've got working on a number of really difficult tasks currently. Um, I'm probably the most challenging one. Um Violence against women and girls, which we're working on at the moment. You know, it's a it's an incredibly sensitive topic, and one where we have different audiences. You know, we're trying to engage the potential perpetrators and trying to change their behaviours. That's very very difficult because, of course, they don't see themselves as being potential perpetrators. And then we're trying to engage women. And that's very difficult as well, because there's a school of thought that clearly says, well, you know, why should we have to, you know, protect ourselves in, in this way? And and then there's a third audience, which is the bystanders. You know, how do you give people the tools to intervene when they see situations like this, when their own personal safety can be at risk? So that is one that is a very you know, very, very complex, challenging topic to to navigate. And a lot of the work we do there is working with real with trusted voices and influencers and people who who can reach these audiences it in moments uh that paid for media simply couldn't 
reach them and it wouldn't be appropriate for paid for media to reach them. So, you know, the power of trusted voices in circumstances like that's really important. Jane, I wish we had like three more hours left, like a ton of questions I want to ask you. <laughs> we need to get you back on the, on the podcast. Last question before we get into our favorite questions. You are part of Worldwide Partners. We met at their EMEA event a few months ago. John Harris, uh, the CEO, was, was kind enough to in, invite me. Um, they're obviously an international network of more than 70 independent uh, and diversified kind of agencies um, for, from over 40 countries, I think it is. Just a really massive, impressive network. Maybe talk a little bit about why you joined in the first place and what value do you get from the network? So um, we joined Worldwide Partners International because um, uh, our clients were increasingly uh, asking us for um, uh, international insight and international uh, delivery capability. And um, and it, it, it became one of the mandatories, actually, for the UK uh, government in their uh, recent uh, roster review. Um, so, but Worldwide Partners, I think, is massively uh, important to us um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the insight uh, resource. You know, we, we have all of these agencies internationally who are able to support us with pitches and on client work to generate, you know, sort of international competitive reviews, to pre-test creative work, to draw in insight um, and that is massively, massively helpful. And, you know, on, on, on some of our pitches, that's, that's game changing, you know, our ability to be able to say, you know, this is how topics like, you know, organ donation, blood donation might be tackled in the US or whatever, you know, that's really, really helpful. And our ability to pretest work as well, you know, creative work is, is, is really helpful. And I guess that's, that's from the client delivery perspective. I think from the agency's perspective, uh, in terms of our own operations, the ability to, uh, you know, we're all entrepreneurs running our own businesses, facing similar challenges. You know, the resignation generation is top of, <laughs> I'm sure, many of our uh, list of challenges currently. And the ability to talk to other senior agency leaders um, about their experiences and their ideas and, and their case studies is immensely helpful because it can be quite lonely being the chairman and CEO of an, you know, an independent uh, agency. So it's brilliant. You know, I've got this fantastic peer group um, who can, who can, you know, really help and support and I can draw upon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think they've been absolutely fantastic organization to be part of. Let's jump into our favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So really excited to ask you some of them as well. I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, so I'll try and get through as many of them as I can. First one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from that experience. Um, I failed to show for my daughter's first nativity play. Terrible. She was three. She was only a sheep and she will never know that I wasn't there. Um, she will and now. I beat my, but well, she will now, cause she'll listen to this. Um, but I beat myself up about it quite a lot. And I think it was, it was, uh, you know, I failed. I feel like I failed as a mum then. Um, but my lesson after that actually was linked to that story earlier on about, you know, not wanting in a, in a male dominated world to admit that I was going to take time out of a working day to go to, to an activity mm. play. And actually the lesson I learned out of that is that is more important than anything. My family is more important than anything. And from that day on, I would always block out time, even if I was just kind of saying I was off to a meeting or whatever it was, you know, prioritizing my family was really important. Mm. Apologies, Lucy, if you're listening, I still do beat myself up. 
<laughs> Love that. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to behavior change, marketing, uh, agency growth. Yeah. So my mentor um, it was it was actually my first ever boss, um, and she's she's now in the uh, Dame Silla Snowball, um, and she was just um, a, a, an amazingly kind, brilliant, nurturing manager. She's had an absolutely stellar career. She has always extended the ladder down. She has always been there in my moment of, um, ah, I don't know what I've got to do next, you know, uh, on the end of a telephone. And I think um, for me, that's been really important, having somebody who has been there and extended the ladder to me. That's had a massive influence on me and how I, how important I think mentoring is and how uh, I uh, mentor a, quite a number of, of uh, uh, um, women. I do 12 mentoring sessions a year um, to encourage young women um, to, uh, you know, to grow and to develop within the industry. So uh, from the point of view of career development, um, absolutely, you know, Scylla, top of the list. Massive thanks. Love that. The books question. Tell us about some of your favorite books. They can be fiction, nonfiction, business related, behavior change related, whatever. My favorite books probably are crime books. Um, I devour crime books. Um, and I think it's because of the pure sort of escapism uh, in it and uh, the brain tease of the, of the whodunit. And that's my, my genre. Any any recommendations? Any particular titles or authors that we should be aware of? Uh, P. D. James absolutely mm-hmm. love um, P. D. James books. Can read them time and time again. Manette Walters, and it all started, I guess, with Agatha Christie years and years ago. That was the first sort of uh, batch of uh, of books that I read read end to end. But um, yeah, really, really, really enjoy it. What's the most interesting thing that people don't know about Jane Asher? that my music taste is heavy metal. So I'm a Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, yeah. Pearl Jam, Deep Purple. Amazing. Um, that's my genre. That's your go-to. My go-to. That, uh, unbelievably, that de-stresses me. <laughs> <laughs> the heavy metal. Yeah. That and being a Cardiff City supporter, but we all have our cross to bear. Surely that increases your stress. And then you got another uh, fascinating story to tell about how you almost bought them. You told us at, at, at dinner. Well, I mean, I'd love to. You see, I've, I mean, they've always been in my blood, Cardiff City. And I was, uh, I first started going to watch them when I was about six with my dad. And I was known as Laddie on the terraces. I had short hair. And I, um, a, uh, a few years back, um, they uh, were um, owned by a guy called uh, Sam Hammam. And Sam Hammam, for those of you who know anything about UK football, uh, ran um, the Crazy Gang um, and uh, was a long associations with Wimbledon Football Club. Anyway, so uh, he'd, he'd bought um, uh, uh, staking in uh, Cardiff City and I was determined to work with Cardiff City. So I uh, wrote him a letter um, and nobody ever replies to new business letters, right? But, <laughs> but he did. And so the receptionist sort of calls out and says, Jane, I've got Sam Hammam on the phone. I said, stop taking the mick out, you know, it's not... <laughs> Anyway, 
So I get on the phone and um, chatting to, to, to Sam and he said, I found your letter really, really interesting, Jane. He said, uh, you call yourself a, a a chairman, but you are a woman. I thought that was that was very interesting, <laughs> fascinating story. Anyway, so we we carried on we carried on chatting, and actually we had a good conversation. And he basically sort of said, "Look, in order to do what you want us to do, I think we need to be in the Premier League." Uh, and they weren't at that time, so very nice, very civilized conversation. A few years later, fast forward, they get to the Premier League. So I am in the director's box and um, having a chat uh, again with the club's COO. Uh, and uh, and this was just before um, Vincent Tan bought the club, actually. Um, and uh, so he, the club was for sale, and I was kind of going, oh, "I'm really, really interested. How much? How much is the club? You know?" And it's this, this, this multi-multi million pound figure. I went, mm, "I think that's a bit beyond me. What about shirt sponsorship?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so no, I mean, I absolutely love the club, and um, uh, yeah. Amazon Prime or Netflix or Disney Plus or, you know, what do you watch or stream that's good? My sort of really go-to at the moment is Peaky Blinders. Absolute Brilliant. fan of Peaky. Birmingham is where I'm from. Yeah, love it. Love the music. Again, you know, the, 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 the certainly in the earlier series, the, the music was brilliant. And as quite a lot of my, you know, genre, a bit of Sabbath in the early series. And yeah, just again, it goes back to why I like crime. You know, it's just that total sort of immersion. So yeah, any good crime series, that's, um, that's me. We're learning a lot about you here, Jane. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in an agency? The first thing I'd say is it is just the most brilliant career. And I do worry that actually advertising might have lost its shine a bit. But, uh, you know, it really is such a fantastic, rewarding, fun career um, to uh, be curious. You know, ultimately, it's all about what makes consumers tick. So just being really very curious, I think, is 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 massively, massively important, you know, and go and go for it. You know, is it is it's fun. It's rewarding. Yeah. Love that. And my final question, Jane, what does it you know about changing people's behavior today that you wish you knew right at the beginning of your career? It's all about listening and insight. And I, you know, I, I, I probably in my early career wasn't the best listener. Um, there'll probably be various people listening to this pod, podcast going, <laughs> yeah, too, right. Um, so, so, and also that it's just, it's just about little gentle nudges um and and i think those those two things have been big sort of you know learnings for for for, for, for me it's a great place to end jane thank you so much for doing this pleasure great fun <laughs> we have been speaking with jane asher she's currently the ceo of 23 red if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to apple podcast where you can listen to over 163 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in marketing follow us on linkedin head over to agencydomasters.com and sign up to our weekly email newsletter to make sure you never miss an episode we would be unable to do the show that our very own deal masters tyler baller is our booker christoph boaszczyk is our executive producer i'm nathan alibaba you've been listening to agency deal masters 
This episode was brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a network of over 75 independent marketing and services agencies from over 40 countries, delivering outstanding work for some of the biggest brands in the world. In this episode, I sat down with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners, one of the nicest men in the agency world that you will ever meet. John invited me to watch Watford beat Manchester United a few months ago. Um, You might remember that's the game where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got fired. Um, Long time coming. And I got the chance to spend the whole day with him. Um, And I have to say that John has become a really close friend, as well as a source of wisdom when it comes to how global brands and agencies get more from the partnership and and how they grow and and collaborate. Um, In this four-part series, John and I discuss what makes worldwide partners different to the traditional holding groups, which brands are best for the network to work with, um, how the agencies and the network actually use the worldwide partner story to attract global clients, their criteria for selecting which agencies actually get to join and which don't. It's an absolutely fascinating mini-series. So please enjoy my fascinating bite-sized chat with the CEO of Worldwide Partners, John Harris. John, I was lucky enough to be invited to your EMEA growth event in in London, um, your partner summit in November last year. It was fantastic. And I was really struck by how much of a family the network seemed like. You know, WPI is run by the agencies, not the other way around. What makes WPI different to your traditional holding groups, would you say? Well, first and foremost, I would say we were lucky to have you join us in London. And I also want to take a moment to say thank you for the time you're spending here on Agency Deal Masters and, and speaking with a few of our agencies. As you might imagine, we get the question uh, quite often about how we differ from the holding company models. Uh, I think the best way to think about Worldwide Partners is as a reverse holding company. Um, rather than the network owning the agencies, the agencies own the network. So my accountability is to a board of directors of 10 independent agency owners representing seven countries across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, who I work alongside with to establish the goals and strategies for the network. So again, uh, vis-a-vis the agency holding company model, rather than a network acquiring the agencies and dictating the terms to the agencies, the agencies establish the operating principles and the terms for the network. So all of our 75 agencies across 43 countries remain 100% independent, they leverage the inter- interdependent framework of our network for collaboration that Worldwide Partners provides. Well, from the EMEA event, it really sounded like brands get the most value from WPI when they're very specific about their requirements and what they need capability-wise, geography, sector, sector focus, etc. Talk us through the types of brands that WPI is right for, who are you not right for, um, what's the ideal fit? Well, the, the reality is that the client briefs and the RFPs have become significantly tighter. They're, they're more prescriptive. They are more dimensionalized. And candidly, they're just, they're just better. Uh, their clients are no longer simply looking for just a uh, doing a review for global media capability. So for a global creative AOR, they are looking to handpick marketing expertise by geography, by industry, and by capability to address very precise business situations. So for example, uh, pharma brands are not just looking for pharma agencies. They are looking for a pharma agency with oncology experience, with CX capabilities in the UK. So five years ago, 
if you looked at our network, we represented 52 agencies, primarily 80% full service agencies in 32 countries. Today, we have 75 agencies in 43 countries, and our industry expertise crosses over 90 industry verticals. So we've added specialist agencies in pharmaceutical marketing. Uh, Worldwide Partners Health is now the largest healthcare practice of independent agencies in the world. We've added not just B2B agencies, but industrial B2B agencies, tech B2B agencies, travel and tourism agencies, agencies that specialize in franchise and multi-unit marketing, agencies that specialize in food and agricultural marketing. And we've added specialist agencies in PR and multicultural marketing, behavioral change, experiential marketing, organizational design. So we have evolved based on clients' needs. You know, we had been primarily a, or thought of as a multinational solution to delivering bespoke agency service solution for clients. But essentially now we are independence on demand, independence at scale, and most importantly, independence as one. So who are we best suited for? Clients who are searching for specialized expertise by market, by vertical, or by capabilities delivered through an independent agency alternative to holding companies. I would also say global or regional brands who require multinational marketing, but delivered from the market, not for the market. Okay. So what I mean by that is that today's consumers are increasingly seeking more localized more personalized experiences that are relevant to their own cultural context and situation. And the most important piece about relevance is that relevance drives revenue. And relevance comes from familiarity. Familiarity is, is, is a matter of fluency. You cannot fake it, which means you have to have marketing that's created from the bottom up for the markets, not simply adjusted to the market, which is what most global brands tend to do is develop a global brand strategy that is that is driven from the top. And we are best suited for brands that, that appreciate a ground up local first mentality, not at the expense of efficiencies, but in the name of effectiveness. And so when you look at the holding company model, they are contracting to regional hubs, right? Located in major business centers. So while they're doing that, we've actually grown our footprint to ensure we can deliver hyper-local, relevant brand experiences for our clients. So if you take an example, take Brazil as an example, all the holding companies, they're in Sao Paulo, right? They have, that's where they are. They manage a pan, sometimes pan Latin America campaign, even though in Latin America, most of them speak Spanish and in Brazil, they speak Portuguese, but that's for another time. But in Brazil, it's one of the largest countries in the world. And so we have six offices in Brazil because what works in Sao Paulo doesn't work in Rio. And so our approach is much more suited to those clients who, who want to work from the bottom up. Now, you, you had asked, who are we not best suited for? If I may shift the lens of the question slightly to say, who are the clients that we want to work with? Okay. The world does not need another full service generalist agency. We want to work with brands who place value in expertise, industry expertise, market expertise, specialized capabilities, clients who are placing equally, if not more value on effectiveness than purely efficiencies. Um, I think we also want to work with clients that recognize that our agencies are independently owned and operated is that, that that's actually a benefit and not a deterrent to collaboration. And I'll, I'll give you a specific example. We were in a pitch against a holding company, which we lost. And it was a global pitch. And the feedback that our lead agency heard from the client was, well, we visited their office in London. 
We visited their offices in Shanghai. We visited their offices in New York and they all looked and felt the same. And I said to our agency who was playing a lead agency role, is that a good thing? I mean, in, in, in a world that, that, that celebrates diversity, a world where every market is unique and different and requires a unique and different approach, what's the value in uniformity? The value is in unity. So, you know, when we talk about our network, we are, we are unified, but not uniformed. And I think clients that recognize and value the difference, those are the ones we want to work with. You are listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge, the growth-focused podcast agency.